This is the Private Capital uh, Strategy Series, Episode 11. We have James Rooley here from Old City Investment Partners and Paul Filanowski um, at Four Pines. And um, we're here to talk about uh, new ways to connect with institutional investors. Uh, James, um, tell us about you. Tell us what we should know about Old City. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. And, and thanks, everyone, for joining. And thank you, Chris and Paul, for having me. Um, so my name is James Rooley, as mentioned. I'm the managing director of Old City Investment Partners. We are a broker dealer that has been around for approximately 16 years. We raise capital on behalf of alternative, alternative investment funds. And we also have a pool of capital that we invest alongside those funds that we raise capital for. Um, so I joined the firm approximately four years ago now to really scale our business outside of the US. Um, and then more recently, I've been more involved with also the capital allocation piece of, of, of what we do as well, alongside the, the asset raising side of things. And tell us more um, about the asset raising side of it. Uh, when we were first uh, talking, it was about uh, new ways to do that. Um, part of it maybe having to do with you know, generations changing and also COVID. Um, you told us recently about an event in New Orleans, for instance, that kind of illustrates a smart way to engage with institutional investors. Yeah, so first and foremost, I think that you know community is more important uh, than ever. I think that if you can blur the lines between fun and work, it's something that's really looked upon fondly across the whole uh, investor community and also fund manager community by extension. So the example that you're referring to, Chris, is a conference that we recently hosted, Old City hosted in New Orleans to coincide with JazzFest, where we had 15 of our highest conviction alternative fund managers spanning across hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, private credit, alongside 60 of our closest investor relationships to, to really enjoy three days of targeted panel content, one-on-one -on -one meetings, but then also to enjoy the, the festivities uh, and the amazing environment that is Jazz Fest in New Orleans. So it sort of, as I mentioned before, it blurs the lines between being able to really fulfill your uh, modus operandi as a professional uh, and engage on that front, but at the same time, really be in an environment that is um, exceptionally fun and create long-lasting memories with uh, those alongside the peers uh, that you, you work alongside in the industry. So we found that to be a really effective medium um, to, to achieve that engagement and build that community. And how do you balance an in-person event like that and, and virtual events? Like where are you coming out these days in terms of how to strike the balance between those two things? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, frankly, you know, everybody has, uh, I mean, I, I say this while we're on a virtual event, but I think people certainly have a certain element of, of uh, fatigue, having been sort of bombarded with uh, hundreds and hundreds of different webinars on, on certain subject matter. They do definitely serve a purpose. Um, there is a place for them, and they're, they're a great way of transmitting information, especially if the subject manager is, if subject matter has really been thought through and is poignant. Um, but I do think that, you know, more so than ever, um, there's been an overcorrection toward more in-person events. And I think, um, you know, with, with a greater number of, of these events uh, surfacing, but also with a greater resource put toward these events and more thoughtfulness put toward these events, they, they're starting to become somewhat unmissable. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, if you're a professional uh, in the alternatives industry, where, irrespective of which side of the table you sit on, 
um, when you have these uh, events that are uh, so so highly put together in terms of one the subject matter but two the experience they almost become too good to miss uh, and you feel as though you know if, if your if your peers in the industry and your friends and your network will be attending these things um, you know it becomes pretty easy to justify your attendance so to answer your question in a pretty roundabout roundabout way I do think that you know that there, there will always be a place for high quality and more frequent virtual events that serve a very specific subject matter um, but that that should definitely be augmented by the in-person and bringing people together in, in, in a really thoughtful way. I was, I was reading, um, uh, so I think some interviews you've done and, um, I think you've, you've talked about more active events. Um, I've certainly, we, 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 a lot of us know the sort of, you know, this, the steak and, uh, lunch and dinner and drinks. Um, but it sounds like, how do you, how do you select? Um, more active events, and how do you select the right um, way of engaging the investors? Um, how do you how do you figure that out? Yeah, so I think that you know what what you're alluding to specifically um, is something that I created in London, um, and that that the the objective function of that specific event called Active Alts or that community called Active Alts was to try and get people together in the industry outside of the pub. Um, you know, I don't know where folks have dialed in, in, in from uh, on this on this webinar, but in London, it certainly is the case that a lot of socializing takes place, you know, over drinks and in the pub. Um, and I think, you know, there, there became a certain period there after we were all shut down where, you know, the, the weekly drinks turned into biweekly drinks turned into three or four times a week drinks. Um, and, and while everyone was having a great time, I think they probably did themselves physically a few a few disjustices. So the, the 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 remit of what I created was really to bring investors and industry professionals together outside of the pub, um, whether it be tennis, whether it be paddle, which is big in this part of the world, pickleball is bigger in your part of the world, you know, whether it be golf outings, whether it be certain workout classes. Um, that that was really the the objective function of of that. And you know, look, I mean, ultimately that's not for everybody either, right? So I think it's just about um, you know, we'll, we'll touch more on this later, but. I think it's about really knowing your customer or knowing the people that you're trying to get to and serve um, and figuring out, you know, what, what is the best solution and what is the best mix of uh, engagement that works on a case by case basis for certain people. So I guess that point, by the way, pickleball is the fighting words amongst uh, some people over here. Um, just <laughs> checking the attendee list to see. <laughs> um, but um, well, I, yeah, I, I wanted to sort of um, dip on the operations and and uh, and finance side um, at Old City. How does the finance and operations team enable uh, what what you're doing? Sure. So you know, Old City, we we serve we serve a few different. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word customer. Uh, we serve a few different customers, right? We serve investors um, with whom we're trying to connect and, and, and show various funds that we are representing on a marketing basis. You know, we serve those funds um, who, who, who we're performing that function for. And then we also serve other independent uh, third-party placement agents who sit on the old city platform, given that we are a broker-dealer regulated with the, the SEC and FINRA. Um, and so from our perspective, it's, it's very important that our operation operations and, and, and financial tech is set up in a way such that 
you know, there's always a consistent and up-to-date flow of, of information, whether that be, you know, information with regards to the most up-to-date marketing materials and performance numbers of the various managers, not only that we are representing, but also those managers that form, you know, a peer set such that we can have a holistic and 360 degree view of where our clients sit um, in a broader opportunity set of other similar fund strategies. It's also important, you know, from an operational perspective that all of the diligence we're conducting um, in, in servicing our uh, requirement as the regulated entity is always up to date, such that if, you know, the SEC was to ever knock on our door and say, hey, one of your placement agents worked on such and such fund manager, and they ended up, you know, doing something nefarious, you know, we're up to date in terms of the diligence that we conducted to, to, to be able to, to, to service that request. So from our perspective, it's, um, there's, there's multiple facets in which the, the ops team and the finance team work pretty tirelessly uh, to, to ensure that our systems are up to date. And I would say that as a, from a pure placement agent perspective, we're pretty atypical in that sense. Really? And, and are those recent investments or is that in, in terms of the finance, the operation side to enable uh, what you're doing? Is that something that's always been the case or has been ratcheted up recently? Look, like any any business out there, we've scaled over time. You know, we, we really started as a one or two man show back in 2005, and we've become much more institutional in the 18 or so years that we've been in business. I think, you know, certainly since I joined the firm, there's been uh, a concerted effort and a, a significant resource put towards scaling the operation and technological capabilities that we have as a firm. And I think, you know, looking forward 10 years from now, that's really where you can build embedded enterprise value um, and, and continuously focusing on trying to be the best service provider within the placement management landscape is what we obsess over. And I don't think we'll ever stop investing in, in the team and the technology commensurate uh, to that task. So Paul, I wanted to turn to you. Um, obviously you're not in a position to talk about Old City specifically, but how does what James is describing represent a trend or any trends in the industry with regard to the middle and back office, the finance and the ops team supporting what the front office front office is doing, either on the investment side or in the uh, fundraising side? Sure. I mean, I go back to Mike Trinkus, our CEO here. He mentioned he used to, he used to hear cash is king. Well, I think now data is king. Um, and it goes back to James mentioning, I mean, he needs to be, have the most current up-to-date data and basically real time at this point uh, by where we're going in front of them. So we, we're there to I mean, change the innovation of, of what he's doing to get folks out. And it's, an, it's enabling our ops and finance teams to be able to support them. Um, and that's where we come in utilizing technology and our experience and in, in, um, building relationships as well. And then I guess a follow-up question, because I'm thinking about the conversation that um, Mike Trinkus had with, with Bob um, on, on co-sourcing. Um, is is co-sourcing because what I'm what I'm feeling like is is that there's there's some new workflows there's new processes that you know get built up to support um, for instance what what James is describing um, does should a GP have the license to the software where the GL lives uh, on their side on the fun app inside how can they best um, make sure they're able to sort of build an advantage in sure. their uh, workflows. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of momentum on co-sourcing, which is the, the GP, our, our clients will have direct access. So we just log into their instance. So they would own the data, own the, the, the system. Um, we would just 
have a license and go in, which is great because it gives them real-time access to their data. So anytime they want to run reports, stuff like that, they have it at their, at their disposal. Excellent. <laughs> and, um, you know, James and Alt City are talking, uh, he's speaking to it from the sort of broker-dealer side. What do you see on the PE side, the VC side? We see a lot of folks, uh, really, I mean, the same, similar to James, of wanting to get out, um, build relationships, networking, stuff like that. I mean, as we've been starting to travel and ramp up that, we're seeing folks that want to meet us in person. Um, they want us to meet their managing partners, the owners of the firms, to get to build those relationships. So as, as James said, I think people were a little bit of wiped out just from the, the online Teams Zoom videos. People are really interested in, I think, getting out and starting to have that person-to-person that -person contact again. Great. And then, uh, James, coming back um, to you, any um, – there's a lot of uh, 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 folks here. Um, any particular um, sort of special sauces or secrets um, to your playbook that you found successful? We, we mentioned, for instance, um, what, what, you're, what you're doing there in London. Uh, we've mentioned uh, New Orleans. Anything else that you'd highlight that is uh, something that social investors are looking for right now? Yeah, look, I mean, we we all tend to overcomplicate, you know, what we do as professionals, but ultimately this comes down to a game of fighting for attention span. And so within that, you know, in with using tech companies as an example, everyone's always saying, you know, you obsess over your customer. And in this industry, the same thing is true, but the practicality of what that really means is totally different. You know, tech companies are looking to obsess over their customers, which might be measured in the millions. We're looking to obsess over our, our customers that might be measured in the hundreds. 500s, right? So, so what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is if you really want to get the attention and then long-term trust, which is ultimately what it's about and relationship of institutional investors, you really need to be maniacal in your focus and finding out what really matters to you. How can I serve your needs and wants as not only a professional, but an individual as a person? And you know what we, what we typically see in this space is even though institutions might ma manage billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, the teams that manage certain assets or pockets of assets, so, so let's say a pension fund might have a team that specifically focuses on credit hedge funds, uh, and those teams are typically pretty small, right? You don't typically have teams of 100 people focused on one asset class. You know, it's very often you'll see a family office that manages $10 billion, but the team is only you know, six or seven investment professionals. So what does that mean? That means that the, the, the focus and the premium that is placed on a high quality set of peers to which you can exchange and put and push back and forth ideas is extremely valuable, right? So if you can be a conduit to that, if you can be somebody that is, is allowing people to, to get access to that, that is tremendously valuable, right? And so another, another, another part of this equation is that we live in a time where access to base layer superficial information is more easy to access and more prevalent than it ever has been in the past. So what does that mean? That means that now I can find the contact details of every single institutional investor that across you know, a thousand different lists online, which means that their personal contact information is now the commodity that, that many, many, many industry professionals have access to. So how do I go above and beyond and make sure that I'm the person that is trying to target somebody, yes, obviously, from a sales perspective, because that's ultimately what we're here to do. But how can I ask myself first, what can I give? How can I be a resource for this person such that I can stand out from the pack of 100, 200, 300 other people on a daily basis 
that are trying to get their attention. If you speak to any investor that works in any kind of institutional institution around the world, you'll hear the same thing from them, which is that every single day, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unsolicited emails that hit their inbox. And how do you not be another number is another thing that we obsess over. And so that gets us back to being a resource to people and bringing people together. You know, if, if you can ask yourself, how can I use the network that I already have and open that up to other investors who also want introductions and to be connected to investors, you know, that is a, that is a great way to provide a service without selling in, uh, explicitly uh, to a network that you're trying to uh, get in front of. Um, so look, I think that we, as I mentioned, I think that we typically uh, overcomplicate, you know, what we do in this business, but it ultimately comes down to really listening and figuring out, you know, what does this person want as a professional, as an individual, and how can I cater to that as best as I possibly can? And asking yourself, you know, what first can I do? What value can I provide before I'm in a position where I'm asking for something in return? You know, something very similar that one of my colleagues does to, to, to great effect is on a weekly basis, just aggregate pertinent industry um, news articles from various publications and then just send that out in a very easy bullet, bulleted list uh, format to, 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 a, uh, to, to, to an email list, right? And, and people love that. Investors love that. It's just a very simple, nice give that means you can constantly be in front of the people you're trying to speak to on a daily basis and provide value first before you then ask for something in return. So and I think earlier we were talking about you've seen – uh, the rise of maybe some, I don't know, bad actors or sloppy actors, at least, who might be abusing either the access or, as you're, you're uh, mentioning that about the uh, the news articles, that was, uh, I don't know how much you're seeing, um, you know, chat GPT and generative AI um, coming into the picture. But um, t tell us more about some of the friction that's being faced as, um, in theory, the barriers to identifying people are coming down, but it sounds like it's raising new barriers of trying to control the uh, the volume of outreach that might be hitting people. Yeah, look, I think that um, it's it 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 really as you mentioned, it really does come down to to a problem of volume. It really mm -hmm. does come down to the fact that you know many of these folks are are bombarded on a daily basis, and it also comes down to the fact that look, I mean. Ultimately, it used to be the case, you know, pre-08 or even 10 years ago, where there weren't, you know, there weren't 5,000 or 10,000 alternative investment managers. You know, that, that, that you, weren't, you weren't spoiled for choice in the same way that you are now. There wasn't the case that, you know, if you wanted to go and invest in 10 macro funds, there were 10 good macro funds out there. So you're not only facing a, a information or, or a, uh, a noise problem, from the from the from the basis of so many people trying to contact you, you're facing a noise problem from the sheer amount of choice that you have that just didn't exist, um, you know, five ten years ago. And so, what it means to be a thoughtful um, and differentiated investor in the alternatives world means something very different now to what it did ten years ago. It's it's much easier to distinguish yourself. Uh, as a unique-minded um, investor that can build a portfolio of funds that you know maybe not everybody is investing in than it was before, but by the same token, it's much easier to to invest in funds where potentially there's some career risk associated with doing so. And so I just think you have to be mind, mindful and cognizant of all of that 
um, as you build a holistic approach to uh, to reaching out to, getting in front of, and then ultimately building long-term relationships with, uh, with, with institutional investors. So then it sounds like understanding the individual and then going back to the earlier um, point about uh, the, the, the data, um, having the information available so that you can be responsive to those individuals as you get into the uh, the details of the investment. Yeah, I mean, look, and it comes down to as well, having the information available, but also doing the work, right? There's nothing worse than hopping on the phone with somebody for a catch up and to exchange ideas, but all you're really doing is taking all of their ideas, right? So, you, you know, you, you, you want it to be a bipartisan relationship with the folks that you interact with. You want to come to the table with something. So keeping on top of your own research, keeping on top of your own, you know, ideas, keeping on top of, uh, how certain asset classes are performing versus other asset classes, you know, just, just trying to be a purveyor of insight um, is something that I think is, is really important. Um, and, and certainly that we focus on, um, you know, a great deal at Old City. So Paul, if I can come back to you um, in terms of the data and the insights, and there may be a proliferation of ways uh, to identify people to reach out to, to reach out to them. But uh, what we haven't talked about is there appear to be a finite and shrinking number of accountants um, or young people my daughter's age uh, who are interested in getting an accounting degree. Um, can we come back to the sort of the middle and, and the back office that's working to enable what James is talking about? Is there a collision between fewer um, um, people trained in accounting and a lot of people that um, um, think that they can reach out to institutional uh, investors that um, push James into continuing to sharpen and sharpen his game? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a shortage. We're hearing about it, reading about it. I think the Wall Street Journal just had an article about the shortage of, uh, of accountants. And definitely, it's, it's, we have to differentiate ourselves as well in trying to figure out and how we're going to cope with that. Luckily, we've got experience here and our, our two co-founders, Mike Trickus and Celeste Barone. I mean, they have the background experience of people that coming from Common Fund, Portfolio Advisors. Mike's got that we've got a bench of, of accountants, which has been great, but obviously we've got a plan for that. So we've had to, we have an office now up in Syracuse, New York. So we've got to, as you said, I mean, really differentiate ourselves and how we're going to deal with this. So it's definitely, um, we're, we haven't seen it yet. We're hearing about it a lot, um, but definitely it's out there. And, and so is that why, is that one of the reasons why Porpines has um, looked at the, the technology side and the, the co-sourcing point? Well, that's part of it. I think another part is just this industry is it's something that's much needed from a technology standpoint. I mean, that's why we've got the former CTO of IBM, Watson Engagement. A lot of the things we do in this industry are repeatable, call capital, um, distribution, stuff like that. So we're trying to work around that, put a lot of efficiencies in place to make it easier. So when James calls us and, or calls the client or his firm asking the back office for data, that's easily at his disposal. Excellent. I'm uh, watching the clock. I have uh, a few questions that came in uh, that I want to put in front of you two gentlemen. Um, James, uh, the first one is, um, do you use any particular uh, tools? or software um, to keep track of these personal elements in um, institutional investors' um, stories and background? Um, yeah, if you, I mean, if you ask one of my colleagues, they'd probably give you a, a, a much greater answer than I, just because of my um, uh, in, inherent 
lack of organization. Uh, but yes, I do. Uh, I do use, and we as an organization do use HubSpot as an example. Um, you know, that's that's really our, our day in day out. You know, bread and butter. And then we also have you know, document management systems that we use so that we can consistently have at our fingertips the best the best collateral and the most up-to-date information with regards to the funds. You know, I've tinkered and toyed with all of the different email plugins and, and whatever. I mean, to me, there's a little bit of, I just feel a little bit of ick factor associated with that. I'm not saying that it's not effective for other people, um, but me personally, I'm, I'm a little bit more old school in my approach. Sorry, that's probably not the answer that you, you were uh, looking for. No, no, no. At. And then... Um... Yeah, um, uh, I also got a reminder. Um, institutional investors, um, is there anything that you would um, say, James or Paul, about uh, fund of funds? Um, they're interesting because they're both um, um, you know, on, the, on the LP and the GP side, if you will. Um, anything unique that you'd call out there? I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to start, Paul. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, you know, if you look at the evolution of fund of funds through time, they really started um, because a, a, a vast amount of capital that was relevant for alternative investments did not have teams necessarily um, that were, were set up to be able to underwrite a portfolio of said investments. You know, that's changed a lot through time, where now you have the majority of the ENF uh, cohort who all have sophisticated investment teams that have been doing this for many years. Same goes for pension funds. Um, you know, so, so, so that's sort of one of the reasons why a lot of capital fled the space as people started to think to themselves, you know, why are we paying two layers of fees um, in order to access managers that we can ultimately, ultimately underwrite and construct portfolios of ourselves. The second thing that led to a dearth of capital among the fund, amongst the fund of fund cohort was the rise of the multi-strats um, you know, and, and then being able to deliver really uncorrelated, interesting alphas, which sucked, sucked up a lot of the capital from the space. Now, having said that, you know, I do think that, you know, some parts of the market are seeing a resurgence and a need to exist for some of these fund of funds. Obviously, they're different in the, in the extent, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Chris, uh, you know, with, with the respect that, um, you know, unlike typical LPs, Funder funds have their own LPs to serve. And so they go through, you know, many of the same uh, operational complexities and, and people complexities that comes with, you know, a typical fund manager and having to service, you know, your client base and having your client base be able to redeem on a basis that is not, you know, commensurate to your vision of, of, of how long you think your business, you know, should run. You know, when you have somebody who is your capital provider and the provider of your blood as a business that can say on a quarterly or annual basis, I'm going to take that blood away from you. Um, but you had anticipated, you know, living for you know more than more than ten years. That that can that can pose some some uh, some tough challenges. But I do think funder funds now serve a purpose in quite specific niches. I think there are hard to access asset classes such as you know micro small cap investing, where having access to a consummate sector specialist professional who knows how to underwrite specific funds, who knows how to gain access to capacity in capacity constrained funds and ultimately construct portfolios that are well risk managed, you know, they do serve a, a purpose. Um, and, and then also, I think that the majority of the fund and fund universe now is, is a proxy for low beta alternative investments. So the majority of, of true fund of funds that you'll see that are not sector specialists, they're typically trying to offer a beta that's less than two, uh, and then a diversified, uh, a diversified alternative investment exposure um, to, to, to their ultimate investors. So you won't see them sort of 
you know, too often traffic in the world of, you know, long biased equity fund managers, you know, for example. Excellent. Paul? No, I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing, it, especially in fund of funds, just centralizing the data. There's so many data databases that these firms have that they're looking at for us for help and expertise, trying to centralize the data, being able to report off of it, having it easy at their disposal at their fingertips. Perfect. Great. Well, we just uh, hit the half hour. Um, so thank you very much, uh, everybody who joined us. Thank you, Paul. Uh, hope you uh, get, some, get some rest. Uh, uh, and then uh, James, um, have, a, have a good evening over there in London. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks, thank you. Thank you.